0: Just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mail with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. It's 9 o'clock Pacific on Saturday, and we're here to talk with you about the markets and the economy, and to give you some insights into what's going on out there, so hopefully you can make some informed decisions about your own stuff. So, uh, let us uh, begin with our uh, dramatic reading of the indices, where they all ended this uh, last week, this last trading week. The... uh, Indicators were all higher for the week, uh, for the second week in a row, as a matter of fact. The Dow ended at 34,861. That was higher by 153 points on Friday. S&P rose to 4543. NASDAQ was up at 14,169. Uh, Russell 2000 finished at 2077. Gold uh, quoted at 1954 an ounce. Silver at 2540 an ounce. Crude up at one thirteen ninety a barrel, ten-year Treasury also up at two point four eight percent, and soft white wheat a tad higher at eleven fifty four a bushel. Now, uh, as I mentioned, uh, well, as I mentioned, the uh, Dow up three percent, three tenths of a percent for the week. S and P up one point eight, the Nasdaq up almost two, and the S and P itself is up almost three, almost four percent higher in March. So it's basically erased all its losses since uh, the Russians uh, showed up in Ukraine late last month. Coming up this week, uh, Tuesday, we get the job openings and consumer confidence reports. Wednesday, we'll get the uh, fourth quarter GDP report update and the private sector payrolls report. Thursday, we get initial jobless claims. And Friday, the, uh, what would it be, March jobs uh, report comes out. Along with the ISM manufacturing survey, so a bunch of economic reports coming out first of next week. Now, this past week we had a what was it? I guess Thursday we had a real good report. Initial jobless claims came in at one hundred eighty-seven thousand folks. That was the lowest level since nineteen sixty-nine, uh, and and uh, uh, let's see, well September sixth, nineteen sixty-nine. If you're keeping score at home, but that was a few weeks after Woodstock, uh, for those of you who might even know what that is, and this week's, it's interesting that when you consider that the population is up by 66% since then, so on a relative basis, there's even fewer folks uh, unemployed than uh, were in the case in 1969. Now, this week in 1999, the uh, Dow crossed 10,000 for the first time, and I can recall there was all kind of hooting and hollering at that time because it was the first five-digit uh, report uh, for the Dow. And uh, just for reference, uh, as of yesterday, it closed at 34700 So we've continued to do pretty dang good. Now this guy, Jerome Powell, who is uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, had a few things to say this week after his meeting last week, and he caused all kind of consternation uh, when he started talking. Now, he said on Monday, and I'm quoting, he said inflation is much too high. And he said he'd take the necessary steps to bring prices under control. He added that rate hikes could go from the 25 basis point moves, that's one quarter of 1%, to a more aggressive 50 basis point increase if necessary. You know, it's only in Fed talk would a one-quarter of one percent difference be considered aggressive. But anyhow, now the central bank is probably, you know, they're kind of working on hooks here a little bit because they're kind of, they got to walk that line. And boy, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want that job. You got to either be very careful. You don't want to raise rates too little and letting inflation, you know, continue to get out of control or, you raise them by too much and just set off the brakes and create a recession for no real good reason. Now Goldman Sachs has turned more hawkish about rates. They say that they expect those 50 basis point rate hikes uh, in May and June, with 25 percent excuse me 25 basis point jumps in the other four meetings this year, and three more in the first three months next year. So. You know, their target rate, their meaning, sorry, the Federal Reserve's target rate of 2% wouldn't be even remotely high by historical standards. It's still very low relative to current inflation, and even low uh, versus future inflation expectations uh, is determined by looking at the uh, futures market and treasury securities. If you raise the short-term rate to 2%, it would not invert the long end of the yield curve, which in America means that the uh, uh, short-term rates would be higher than long-term rates, and that's not a good thing. That typically uh, can lead to a recession. Now, the interest rates have climbed much more quickly on short-term treasuries than on the longer-term bonds because folks are expecting a rapid series of interest rate rises on the short end, and again, that's directly attributable to the Fed, so usual and normal in that regard. And uh, again, the traders are thinking that the Fed's going to bust it up by a half a percent in May and again in June and get it to 2% by the end of the year. So from the start of January, the 10-year, now the 10-year is, you know, we talk about it on the uh, morning reports all the time uh, because the 10-year rate is the base for almost all loans in this country. It's, uh, you know, kind of the reference point, if you will. And so, when it moves, it has a big ripple effect, and in that regard um uh, the ten year has is up eighty five basis points uh so that's over three quarters of one percent from one point six three that was where the ten year was at the start of January to two forty eight yesterday so you know, it, it did hit, by the way, the 10-year did hit 250 yesterday. That's the highest since May of 2019. And just this week, it was at 2.15. So it's all going up quite quickly. And again, ever since Mr. Powell said, "Yeah, we're going to raise rates a little faster than we thought. So what does that mean to us as investors? Well, near your term, you're probably not going to see much of a bump, if any, in your savings accounts, CDs, or money market accounts. You know, the Fed's talking points have helped move up the rates, they call that boning, but they've only still actually raised their benchmark rate by a quarter of a percentage point. So until it becomes real, you're not going to start seeing any increase in those particular returns. A general rule of thumb for your individual bonds as well as bond funds is that the longer the maturity, in other words, the longer the time until the bond or the average uh, holdings of the bond fund come due the more sensitive you are to interest rate movements this more sensitive the price of the bond or bond fund is the interest rate movements so that means that the longer term bonds tend to see their prices rise more when rates move down and fall more when rates go higher it's you, <laughs> you think of the long-term bonds that being that guy who always gets picked last and is at the end of the crack the whip line so that whenever interest rates start moving here in the center, those folks out at the end get moved around a whole lot more than the ones closer to the uh, center of the circle. So the Morningstar 5 to 10-year U.S. Treasury bond index so far this year is down 5.7%. And since August of 2020, and that was its last peak, it's down just about 10%. That's the largest drawdown in history. The uh, iShares U.S. Treasury Bond ETF, again, that's an exchange-traded fund. It trades like a stock. Uh, In other words, it's liquid. The symbol for that guy is G-O-V-T. So... It's at, uh, what was it, yesterday it ended at a 52-week low at $25 a unit. Pays a 1.06 dividend, so it's not anything, but it's down 7.3%. That's uh, 3% in the past month and 1% just this past week. So a broader tracker of the bond market, the Vanguard Total Bond Fund, uh, VBMFX, that's down 6.4% for the year, with a 2.7% decline in the past month. <laughs> the worst year in history was previously a 26 decline in 1994. You know, we've talked uh, a long time on the program about uh, this relationship between interest rates and bonds, and I guess now it's actually starting to come to pass. And see, what you, the, the basic math is this. As rates go up, interest rates in general go up, The existing bonds that you may own, whether they're, well, whatever type, tax-free, taxable, U.S. government, foreign government, uh, doesn't matter. If they're a bond, they're going to be affected by this. And it's all math. So that as interest rates rise, existing bonds, because of their relative rate, will likely tend to Drop in value, and/or the portfolios of made up of those bonds will like to drop in value as the rates continue to move. Now, again, the, inter, the, the interest payments that you get will not be affected in ninety-nine point nine percent of the cases, but uh, you'll see the principal value, in other words, what shows on your statements, is definitely being lower. So you know you say, well, I'm earning three uh, percent. Okay. If it's down 5 or 10 percent, is that still a good deal? I don't know. But I mean, you still, that's the effect of these kinds of, uh, when rates go up, you get that kind of uh, reverse leverage. Now, the Bloomberg uh, Global Aggregate Index of Bonds uh, from its high in January last year is down 11 percent through the first of this week. That's the biggest decline since at least 1990, and that's according to Bloomberg. And that translates to a loss of $2.6 trillion in market value, which is a bigger drop than what we endured in 2008. It's kind of (laughs) been a still situation, I guess, uh, but that's what's going on. So when you're looking at your statements here in the next so many weeks, just understand what's going on. It's not because those bonds are terrible, It's not because uh, they're defaulting. It's none of that. It's simply because their rates of return are not as competitive as new bonds coming out. And so they move to what's called a discount to make it level with new bonds. So if rates do continue to rise, you're not only going to see bigger losses on your longer-term bonds and funds, you're also not really being compensated currently for that risk with higher yields. Matter of fact, investors in shorter-term bonds are getting actually about the same yield as longer-term. Now, I'm going to use U.S. Treasuries because, again, that's the bogey for every other kind of bond. A two-year Treasury right now uh, is paying 2.29%. For a five-year bond, 2.56. A 10-year, 2.48. And a 30-year, 2.59. So, forgive me, but... Two and a half percent for 30 years doesn't exactly seem to be a good risk-return kind of relationship. Now you do need bonds in the portfolio to help mitigate some uh, stock market movement. I get that. But uh, don't overdo it because you're going to uh, negatively affect your, your principal value in most cases. And you know, in addition, because when it comes to rising interest rates generally, And, as we're starting to see, borrowing rates go up, too, because there's a very strong relationship between the 10-year Treasury and 30-year fixed-rate mortgages over time, as well as car loans and others, as I mentioned before. Now, I don't believe that higher interest rates are going to be affecting the housing market like they did in the mid-2000s, because fewer mortgages are of the adjustable rate variety and most folks have much better credit because they've used the time in the interim to basically get their personal balance sheets under control. You know The effect of tightening is going to be mostly felt by, again, no surprise here, first-time home buyers and in the cost of car loans, no matter how many cars you may have purchased here before. And given the current scarcity of houses and cars, well, you may just have to dig deeper anyway. Uh, If there is a good reason for the Fed to raise rates, and they do so, that's good news, not bad news. We're still very far from seeing any conditions that would signal a recession. Because over the past 40 years, the U.S. economy has been in recession six times. Yes, I've got a purple heart for each one of those dudes. And there is no sign that liquidity is in short supply, and that's very important. As long as the economy is not being starved of liquidity, i.e. available cash, it's very unlikely to have anything resembling a collapse. So, breathe deeply. Now, what about this inflation stuff? Well, you know, farmers are well aware of this one. Fertilizer prices were already high before the war. Now they're at record levels because the Russians, uh, well, anyhow, supply interruption. And so, fertilizer is about three to four times costlier now than it was a couple years ago. And so, that has a negative ripple effect on incomes of farmers, agricultural yields, food prices, because guess what? You know, the folks who have to pay for those fertilizers to create the crops, they got to pass it on to the buyer. I mean, come on, that's how it works. So, in the 70s with inflation, for those of you who missed that, it was high for most of the decade. Now we're talking multiple years, not a couple months like we've been going through here. This is, it averaged, now this is inflation, averaged more than 7% over the entire 10 years. It was up to 13% by the end of the 70s. And let me say to you that it wasn't very much fun. The unemployment rate was also pretty high. It went as high as 9% following the 73-74 recession It ended the 70s at 6%, uh, and the short-term rates went to 2%. In 69 70 they had a recession, but that didn't help inflation because in 1979, the rates went up to 18%, and inflation was already out of control. That's what they had to do to kill it, and that's what they don't want to do now because, like I said, that was no fun. Now, the biggest difference between then and now is that the 10-year Treasury in the 70s never went below 5.3%. It was about 8% in that 10-year period and hit uh, double-digit levels into the 80s. So, as I've said, this current 2.4% rate, that's basically no meaningful figure compared to those levels. And in the spring of 80, inflation was almost 15% while long-term governments were yielding more than 10%. And oh, by the way, before you say, gee, I wish I had those yields, well, the tax rate that came with that was 70%, 70%. that was the top individual income tax rate. So it was really hard to make money in that environment. Now, what worked in the markets in the 70s were commodities. The uh, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index was up more than 20% per year at that time. So that's why I say infl- commodities are a good inflation hedge. And oil was up more than 800%. Energy stocks up more than 70%. That's adjusted for inflation. And what I've done is um, pick out a few exchange-traded funds, ETFs, that are in the commodity space that you might want to consider to help add to your, perhaps your holdings, give you a little bit of a cushion, a little protection against uh, some of these movements without having to totally change your spots um, there's one called and these are just reference you know feel look them up do your own homework and see if they fit but I think uh, they can generally apply and again they're liquid you can get in and out of them no time no problem uh the one first one in no particular order um, the Aberdeen standard. Bloomberg all Commodities strategy, Whoa, The symbol is BCI, Bravo Charlie India. And it gives you exposure to more than 20 commodities, energy, ag, industrial, precious metals. Top three holdings at the end of the year were gold, crude, and natural gas. Now, if you're a wheat guy, there's one uh, that is called, <laughs> the symbol is W-E-A-T. It's two Korean wheat, And so they think that this, well, that's a way to play that market. Aberdeen uh, Bloomberg Industrial Metal Strategy, Aluminum, Copper, Nickel, you've heard of those recently, right? Well, the symbol for that one is BCIM. That pays about a 1.2% dividend. We're talking about exchange-traded funds in the commodity space. um, And uh, I got a few here that are... Let's see more energy- related, but let me give you the symbols of those others again, if you miss them. Um, BCI, the all commodity strategy, wheat WEAT, uh, the Bloomberg Industrial metals is B C i M, and then uh, there's the XLE, which is the energy select sector, index of and P 500 energy shares. Uh, 21 energy sector stocks it's a 3.2 percent dividend the first trust new opportunities mlp and energy fund uh, they invest in a portfolio of master limited partnerships mlp related entities and other companies in the energy sector um, this one pays a 7.2 percent dividend we do a lot of business with this one and uh, next one i am going to tell you about this uh First Trust Tactical Commodity Strategy Fund, FTGC. Did I tell you? It's FPL. Sorry, I don't know if I told you the symbol for the uh, MLP fund. It's FPL. And this one, FTGC. Um, Highly diversified commodity portfolio, 10 to 35 commodities, uh, a 5.6% dividend return. So these are, you know, you don't, you don't, Go all in on these things they're a little too volatile, but they're not again you're not buying one particular commodity and saying you bet your bucks on how wheat or corn or soybeans or whatever uh, actually do. These are diversified they're a mutual fund in effect, and so it's a great way in my opinion to play these and uh, have provi- again uh, with some of those you get a, a nice little cash flow while you wait so. Um, you add those to your portfolio as a way to help balance it out. Think of it as adding, um, you're you're making chili at home, okay, and with beans, it's good stuff, right? And you add in a bunch of chili powder, but instead of making it hotter, it actually tends to make it a little less spicy because that's what the the, uh, addition of the commodities does. It tends to mitigate a lot of the, volatility of an overall portfolio because these things are what's called non-correlated they uh, do not move in the same direction as stocks or bonds so that's why as i mentioned earlier when you, uh, in the uh, uh, pre- in the previous iteration uh, back in the 70s and 80s you had the uh, b- goldman commodity index up 20% a year in that period of time so speaking of oil the oil prices rose this week. You may have noticed. I know if you if you drive a vehicle, you probably did come across this. Um, now, energy is one of the two S&P 500 sectors that are showing a gain for the year. That sector alone is up 37%, uh, while uh, the overall uh, S&P is still down a bit year-to-date, and it's in the sector 17 of the 25% best performance in the S&P are in the energy sector. We got Exxon up 34%, Chevron up 40%, 62 Oxy Oxy, uh, Occidental Petroleum, sorry, up more than 100%. The tech sector's down 10%. So, you know, folks have been rotating out of tech and other growth companies and going into these, uh, what you might call value-oriented firms. And plus, these are uh, definite inflation-hedge-type companies. You know, gasoline prices in 1980 and in March of this year, after adjusting for inflation, are actually similar. However, drivers are using 25% less fuel because of the increased efficiencies in the vehicles that we drive. So uh, that's one of the reasons it's perhaps not quite as onerous, meaning the effect on us individually as it was back in the day. Uh, Patrick Dehan, he's head of petroleum analysis for Gas Buddy. Those are the guys you can use to find out where cheap gas is. Anyhow, he's saying, we're predicting a yearly national average of $3.99 a gallon. And he thinks that's pretty likely to stick. Prices at the pump reflect the current prices of about $115 for a barrel of oil. And it was about 111 yesterday, so that's not far off. Now, the Penn Wharton budget model, you all know, that's not motel, but Penn Wharton budget model, University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton Business School, they found that if indeed there is a federal tax holiday through the end of the year, big whoop, you save maybe $50 for the average driver based on current gasoline prices. So that is totally a political move. It has no real economic benefit to anybody. Um... So, what's it look like from here, Mike? Okay, let me try and give you a couple ideas from some folks. Ryan Dietrich from LPL says, last week, not this past week, the week before last, for only the fourth time ever, the S&P gained at least 1% for four consecutive days. So, according to Ryan, it's been up 20% every single time with an average gain of 28 percent in the subsequent year, that's good. Now, uh, Ned Davis uh, in uh, research says that uh, we saw last Friday, a week ago Friday, 90 percent of stocks in the S and P were over their 10-year, excuse me, 10-day moving averages. And so Ned Davis says, since 1982, S and P's been higher a year later 35 out of 36 times. They call these moves, and I gotta make sure I say that bread breadth thrusts, b <laughs> r e a d t h thrusts, and are used to measure market momentum. So you know you see clusters of these bread, th- dang it, bread thrusts near the beginning of new uptrends and early in bull markets. Uh, and experience uh, teaches us that. These bread thrusts are not evidence of market exhaustion. Matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. They're characteristics of bull, not bear markets. However, don't tell that to Michael Wilson. He's the guy, remember Mr. Mixoplix from Little Admiral had a cloud over his head? That's this guy. He's the Morgan Stanley analyst. He says, investors should use the opportunity to sell and position more defensively as the U.S. economy is in a late cycle expansion phase. U.S. stocks gained the most since November 20 last week, uh, even at the war raged in Ukraine. Um, and he says bigger drops may be in the cards. He went on to say it's a rally to sell. Okay. So, um, you know, just as an aside, you know, with all this stuff we've been through the last couple of years and everything, I think if, if, if there's going to be any recognition given... Uh, what about the oil, food, manufacturing workers, you know, your uh, gas station folks, uh, folks at the uh, grocery stores, all the s- folks you don't see, you know, the ultimate behind the scenes guy. Those are the people we need to, to honor and, and make special recognition of because they brought us things continually in spite of all these crazy lockdown, stupid mistakes by the government. So accolades to them. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to make sure I got that out there. So, you know, here's what I was saying before. People, you know, got this "oh woe is me" uh, kind of attitude going on. Because measuring from February of two thousand and twenty, the high in February of two thousand and twenty, you know, that's right. The S and P five hundred is up, still up, more than thirty-two percent. However. Sentiment remains in the crapper, and some of the most bearish readings in over half a decade are out there, even worse than during the bug. Well, investors who get all caught up in anxieties and concerns, they've been found more likely to be uh, focusing on negative information. I don't think that's a surprise. They may even look for negative information to reinforce their beliefs that poor results will come from almost anything they do. You know these people. It isn't just about the stock market. And in addition, data that aren't totally clear to them, likely to be seen as bad or threatening. You know, the future is always suspect because it's unknown. And people who operate like this, well, I feel sorry for them, but be that as it may, people who operate like this are more likely to frame any objections from either a fearful, or a heightened loss aversion perspective. They try to mitigate their perceived near-term risk in favor of actually planning to uh, actually planning for the future. Instead of focusing on how best to grow their assets, they all get hung up on things like just don't lose it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that conversation. You know. One of the things, interest rates. I get it. Okay, but see, rising interest rates don't make stocks go down. Um, the uh, w- the U.S. market is mm, partially, semi, positively correlated with the ten-year treasury. But so what that means is is that rising yields tend to come with rising stocks, um, because the uh, corporations would tend to rise their excuse me raise their costs prices in order to cover their costs. So, and Fed hikes, since 1971, we've had 10 cycles, hike cycles, and uh, a year from the first hike in each, the global stocks were up 8 of 10 times, averaging about 7%, so not great, but not horrible. And oh yes, the Russians and the Ukraine, well, please understand this. Stocks are totally unemotional. They don't care. Uh, They may wobble if tensions build, but regional conflicts don't really add much to it. Stocks hate the uncertainty, we've used that term a lot, but the uncertainty mounting tensions more than the uh, sell-off itself, there's a, once again, a phrase in the biz, sell on the fear but buy on the bullets, like I said, there's no emotion involved in it. Uh, You know, people. Well, let me. I'm sorry. Data that aren't totally clear to folks, well, to some folks, are likely to be seen as bad or threatening. And as I said before the break, the future is always suspect because it's unknown. Now, the folks who operate in this mindset are more likely to frame any objections from a fearful or heightened loss, per, loss aversion perspective. You know, and as I said, too, they get hung up on thoughts like just don't lose it as opposed to how do we best grow the assets. That's not the right approach. You know, U.S. households are in a much better financial position at the start of this year than they were before the bug showed up. Excuse me. Household balance sheets in the aggregate, and I'm quoting from, um, dang it, I'm sorry, Bloomberg. Household balance sheets in the aggregate are somewhat better off and not worse off, given the scale of economic contraction is a testament to the support households received through government transfers to the strength of housing and stock markets, and in more recent months to the recovery of the labor market income. This experience stands in stark contrast to the year's following 2008 and 2009. Now based on the financial activity, this is a survey, uh, the financial activity of 653,455 anonymous accounts from one of the largest brokerage firms in the US and I don't know who it is, that's the only attribution I've got, is that nearly a third of folks who panic panic out of the markets never buy stocks again. Now. That's, that's hard to imagine, but that's what they found out. My experience has been, actually, that many panic sellers have actually repurchased stocks at higher prices than what they sold them for, and often later in the recovery when the news is quote-unquote better. Now, here's the thing. Selling's easy. Getting back in is hard, and not getting back in is, can be ruinously expensive. As Peter Lynch, the great money manager, said, and I'm quoting, the real key is to making money in stocks is not to get scared out of them. I think it's bullish that the financial media type's primary response right now seems to be to throw their hands up in pessimistic confusion, which is a classic correction reaction. These people are supposedly knowledgeable about the market, so who knows why they throw these collective hissy fits when the roads gets a little bumpy. It's true that a big story or stories can easily blind folks to history and what actually matters to stocks because they get confused with their own response as opposed to what the stocks do. That's why sentiment overshoots and sets up the rebound that follows. So don't fall for a narrative confusion. Stocks, as I say, they're unemotional. Just remember that eventually, operative term, eventually, stocks shift from being a voting machine to a weighing machine. Benjamin Graham, who was uh, Warren Buffett's mentor, came up with that particular insight. And so what that means is is that short term, yeah, it'll respond to the news, but longer term it looks more and more important things such as earnings and things of that nature. Um, Even with today's news, there are plenty of drivers in place to move earnings growth up for stocks. You know, I think it's funny when you hear people say, well, stocks are divorced from reality. Uh, maybe from their reality, but stock prices by definition are reality. You know, how do those people not see that? It's again beginning to feel more and more like a risk-on environment out there. Investors are piling back into U.S. stocks, betting that the our stock market can withstand the economic headwinds better than in other parts of the world. And despite big daily swings, the S&P is up 5.6% since the Russians showed up in Ukraine. And many investors appear to be using the pullbacks uh, to continue to buy the dip. Now, no one knows when long-term risk is going to show up in certain segments of the stock market. The only answer I can come up with for you is to say prepare for these types of risks by diversifying what you own. When it comes to personal finance, what really matters is not beating some index. What matters is meeting your goals. They're not the same thing. An index is just a broad measure of how one particular market or segment of a market does. It's like the average. Now, financial media types seem to think that their entire purpose in life is to convince us that the best thing you could ever do is to beat an index. No, It doesn't even matter. Okay, say you actually beat an index every quarter of your entire life. You'll be on all kinds of talk shows, you know, getting all kinds of accolades, all that stuff. But let's clarify just one thing. It's still possible, even with that outcome, that you don't meet any of your financial goals. Because... I don't know what your financial goals are. Beating an index has nothing to do with meeting your financial, personal financial goals. My my guidance is focus instead on meeting your goals, and stop worrying about beating indexes. Now we got a couple minutes left, and I do have to make a small announcement. Um, through circumstances beyond our control, somehow, the Zags were upset in the NCAA tournament. Now, that's a whole story of and unto itself, but I would like to say for the record, those guys are a tremendous team. They've got great attitude, they played great, coaching staff is great, the whole system is great. I'm glad to be a fan and will continue to be a fan simply because of the quality program that they have there. Excuse me. So, unfortunately, we didn't go all the way, but we'll get them next time. So, thank you very much for listening this week, folks. I appreciate it. And you can go to our website at uh, opus111.com and find our uh, previous programs if you'd like to uh, re listen or if you've missed some. So, again, thank you for listening. I hope you have a great and productive week. My name is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayle. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.